Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Lime Ninja Radio. I am your host, McKay Rippey, and with me in the studio is Aurora. Hello. Back from a long trip to Long Island and the what festival? It was a Thai festival. Thai festival, not as in bow tie, as in tie the people. Tie the people, yep. So -hmm. what was the most exciting part about it? Ooh, getting blessed by a monk. Getting, I would I would say that was the most exciting part. Okay. Not enough blessings to go around in this world. Nuh-uh. <laughs> we are going to jump right in. Today's guest is Logan McCulloch, and we're really pumped because not only are we interviewing Logan on the road, but we have two updates. He's going to be sending us a short update, and we're going to record it and pop it into the episodes coming up, so you'll be able to track Logan and his trip He's about two-thirds of the way across now, definitely halfway across the U.S. on a bike trip this time. Uh, last year, he did the Appalachian Trail on foot, and this time he's doing the entire U.S. on a bike. And he says he doesn't know how he's getting back from California. So if you have any ideas, maybe you can send them to us and we'll pass them along. <laughs> but, Roy, why don't you go ahead and just introduce us to Logan for those of you who don't know him. Okay. Logan McCulloch contracted Lyme disease on a camping trip to Mammoth Cave National Park in 2011. One morning, he woke up to find more than 20 tiny deer tick nymphs. It became clear he was infected, though he was not probably properly diagnosed until November. With the resources and information provided by the Lyme disease internet community, he found his way to the nearest Lyme literate medical doctor in a neighboring state. He began intensive treatments that helped him recover a good part of his health, though challenges and deficits remained. In response, Logan made a choice to undertake a six-month hike of the Appalachian Trail in the name of Lyme disease awareness. He began hiking south from Mount Katahdin in July 2013. During that hike, he started the Lime Warrior Movement, dedicated to sharing inspirational stories and encouraging collaboration on shared goals and objectives. Thanks, Aurora. We have two updates from Logan, one about a week old and the one just a couple days old. So we'll play the week old one right now, and then we'll get into the interview. And then after the interview, we'll play Logan's update from Saturday. Hi, McKay. It's Logan McCulloch calling in from the the road, the Transamerica Trail. Just giving a quick update um, over the last week. <clears throat> I've covered close to about 400 miles of riding. And I just got into Newton, Kansas this afternoon. I'm actually taking a day off tomorrow and staying with an old friend and former coworker um here in Hutchinson, Kansas, just down the road. Gonna let my legs recuperate a little bit and head back out Wednesday morning. Um I've had some wonderful experiences this last week. Got to meet a fellow Lyme patient, Facebook friend who was on her own cross country journey. Ellie Lobel, and uh, we were able to interview each other in a little town called Fairgrove, um, Missouri, as she was on her way to Cape Girardeau to uh, work with a patient doing bee venom therapy. And uh, so those interviews, uh, one of which is is up on our website, truckfortruth.org, and the other one will be up on our YouTube channel hopefully in the next day or so. Um, so things are going well. Uh hope to do some media here. In the Wichita market tomorrow, 
There's a local Lyme patient by the name of Amy Johnson who reached out to me. She has Lyme for the last 15 years. Her two daughters got it congenitively to her, and um, I'm going to get a chance to meet tomorrow, and hopefully maybe we'll get some local media. So making some good progress. That's the facts as I know them, all the news that's fit the print, so to speak. And thank you so much for uh, following the Trek for Truth. Take good care. Thanks, McKay. Bye. And now our interview with Logan McCulloch. Now, do you have a support vehicle or you got everything packed in saddlebags? What do you look like? Yeah, it's all me. I've got uh, saddlebags on the bike. And um, so it's just a solo, self-supported adventure. Um, I actually just mailed an SD card to my buddy Drew Allgaier, who's kind of my ground support guy back at home. And he uh, uploads videos to our website. And I did a little... uh, video a couple of days ago, kind of a gear tour. Some people had asked me to show them like what I carry, what I camp with. And then I did the same thing for the bike. So that'll be up on our website in probably three or four days. And, uh, kind of gives everybody a bird's eye view of what I'm, what I'm hauling with me. But probably, it's probably actually about 70 plus pounds of biking gear together. The bike is about 26 pounds. It's, I tell people it's kind of like an SUV of the bike world. It's a really rugged <laughs> deal. Built, built to haul, not built for speed. And uh, and then the saddlebag and, and the light and the racks that go with it, you know, are probably another, and that camping gear, another 45 pounds. So it, it's a load, definitely. So hauling that up a mountainside's more than just hauling the bike up there. It is. It is uh, like carrying an eight-year-old boy on your back. <laughs> it's, uh, it's new to me. I've never done touring bicycling. I'm a an avid cyclist. I used to race, but <laughs> I would go up hills with a 16-pound racing bicycle versus a, yeah. you know 75 pounds of, of bike gear. So it it is definitely a challenge. These Ozark Mountains, they say, are the toughest uh, once you get west of the Appalachians, uh, everybody says the Appalachians, and I can believe that, having hiked them, mm-hmm. are probably difficult to, to bike up. But, uh, yeah, so far, so good. Cool. What kind of racing did you do? Bicycle racing did you do? Were you road racing or mountain biking? Yeah. Or? No, I did uh, road racing. <laughs> got into it late in life. Yeah. At the age of 45. That is uh, a little bit late. I, yeah, it's... Uh, I found out it's not that uncommon, though. A lot of uh, former runners, you know, when their knees start giving out, they're going to switch over. Amen, brother. Are you a cyclist? No, I have a patient who's an avid cyclist, so she's been yapping my ear off for about 10 years now. So I live vicariously (laughs) through her. And she's gone through, you know, uh, racing. She's done Leadville distance stuff. She's now doing, like, hill climbs. She's done uh, cyclocross. She's done all kinds of different events. So it's I'm just amazed at that whole little subculture world out there. It's really phenomenal. It really is. Well, she's she's serious. Now, I, I did road racing. I did some cyclocross, but I had some knee problems with cyclocross. So I had to just stick with the road. And I never I never did mountain bike racing. I would I would mountain bike just for fitness, but mm-hmm. uh, racing was primarily road racing and such. And uh, but I line basically ended that for me i was i was racing really actively going into the uh 
2010 season, I had raced in the Masters National Championships when they held it in my hometown in 2009. And then cool. I had an accident on a training ride, just a really silly accident, and I shattered my shoulder and had to have it reconstructed. Ouch. And I'm really convinced that that was a, a precursor, you know, an escalating event for the line infection. Really? Um, I got, yeah, there's a, um, a really interesting doctor, um, God, I'm going to lose his last name, Harvey. He wrote a book called Doc, it called Doctors Are More Dangerous Than Germs. And <laughs> you, you, you that book, it's a really good book. Hang on, let me look it Harvey, up here. Harvey's an MD. He was a trauma surgeon in Vietnam. Mm. And uh, when he came back from Vietnam, he was an eye surgeon. And he eventually went back and got his, his naturopathic uh, certification. And he lived in Arizona, and he actually helped write and lead the legislative process to certify naturopathic doctors on equal footing with MDs in Arizona for insurance purposes. Uh-huh. And uh, Governor Fife Stevenson at the time actually nominated Harvey to to, uh, to lead that process. And a few years later. The medical community, the powers that be, the AMA reps and stuff basically had it in for him because they didn't want that kind of competition. And long story short, they, they basically waged a campaign that put him out of, out of practice. But what he was doing was really fascinating from a Lyme patient's perspective. He had gone to Europe and trained with some of the best integrative um, researchers in Europe he was doing live blood analysis using special microscopes. Yeah, which the is dark field. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, he still does it. And what he what he noticed with his treatment of Lyme patients, Mackie, was, and that's what the premise of this book is about, is that 100% of the patients that came to him that were already clinically and or, or, or laboratory-confirmed Lyme patients right. Um, and, and had a major surgery and or a major accident, traumatic accident, within 24 months of their line becoming virulent. Really? And what he believes is that these traumatic events that suppress the immune system yes. you know, are part of the, the domino effect, then you may already have the bacteria in your body. You may not need a new tick bite. Yes. Yeah, most of us are probably walking around with it. Yeah, I think so. Oh, it makes great sense because he uses the analogy. He said, you know, to the body, because you're under anesthetic, (laughs) to the body it reacts to a surgery the same way as you're getting knifed in an alley. It's a knife going through multiple layers of tissue, muscle, you know, connective tissue, Mm. interrupting synovial fluid flow. Oh, interesting. Really fascinating. So I had that accident, and then about a year and a half later is when I got this series of tick bites on a camping trip. And I really think, you know, I've been bitten by ticks all my life growing up in the country. I really think right. those things built up to the point, like so many live patients, where your immune system just finally crashed, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, they're definitely, you know, I... Oh, this is a very, very minor version of that. But I had a patient come in last week and said, oh, I don't want to come in and get you sick. And, you know, she was trying to explain to me how she picked up this virus. And, you know, I try not to argue with people too much because they're paying 
my salary and I'm trying to heal them. <laughs> and being yeah. in an argumentative state isn't exactly a healing state. However, do try to educate them from time to time. The, the virus has to land somewhere. It's, you know, it's not a, we're not petri dishes. Some, some days we're strong and healthy and can fight those suckers off. And other days we're weak and beat down and we just, uh, crumble. So. Right. Right. Anyway. So the, the doctor's name, hang on. The doctor's name is Harvey Biggleson. Biggleson. Harvey Biggleson. Yeah. Doctors uh, are more harmful than germs. I'm going to buy the book. Yeah, it's uh, you can get it electronically instantaneously. I think it was like five bucks, and uh, I gave my hard copy away. <laughs> you, can also find, you can also find some really fascinating uh, YouTube interviews with with Dr. Biggleton. You know, he can't practice as an MD anymore. They pulled his license. Yeah, of course. He tells the story of what happened in the book. But uh, I saw him about probably five or six years ago on a, a, uh, a internet channel called uh, Conscious Media Network mm-hmm. that has since been bought by Guyon. And uh, an interviewer by the name of Regina Meredith would do a lot of interviews with, you know, integrative healers, alternative healers, um, all kinds of folks. And Harvey had a two-part interview with her, and I just found him fascinating. And, uh, you know, he... he uh, He's lived an interesting life, and he definitely speaks his mind very, very brazenly, and then he doesn't suffer fools gladly. But I, I found him, you know, very, very uh, enlightening. Well, great. Well, I'm going to track him down and see if we can't get him to do an interview for us. Well, that'd be great. That's a great tip. Thanks. So tell me, tell me about your project now. That- well, my project, <laughs> I have to tell you, there, there are two parts of this. One is uh, a little more than a year ago, I'm in a little town in Clinton, New York. And in general, the winters here are pretty cold. And for the most part, it can keep the tick population under control. Uh, So not rampant. But all of a sudden, people, somebody woke up and people started being diagnosed with Lyme disease. And I didn't know how it was happening. Uh, I did know enough. I have a buddy of mine, uh, Greg Lee in Fredericksburg, Maryland. He's another acupuncturist, and he's gotten both feet into Lyme and been uh, really diving into it for really the past, I don't know, dozen years, seven years, uh, ten. Yeah. And uh, so I, I had spoke with him a few times, and he had talked to me about the problems with Lyme. So all of a sudden it's starting to show up here. And I know for the most part the docs are just flying blind. It's not even that they're the conspiracy, although there might be that too. Uh, and so people need need to be taken care of. And even if they do get diagnosed and treated, you know how it works, is even coming off the drugs, they may have some recovery time. So I decided I was going to become an expert in Lyme disease up here to be the, the person to help these folks. And part of my strategy was, well, let's start a podcast. I took around, I only saw Katina's, Katina Macris's, uh podcast on the radio or, or on iTunes yeah. and whatnot. And so I said, well, there's room for more people. So I'll go ahead and start this and it'll give me a good excuse to talk to all the experts and I'll learn everything I can and share the knowledge while I'm learning. And at the same time, be in a better position to help people when uh, they do come to me up here in Clinton. Oh, that's great. I think more communication channels we have. Because you're right. I mean, this this epidemic is spreading out of ignorance primarily. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's there's also, I think, some more nefarious 
um, motivations by some, but the majority, you know, people, including people in the healing profession, have all the best intentions, but they can't be experts about everything, and there's a tremendous exactly. dearth of good information coming out about Lyme disease. Yeah. Well, once it's, I've interviewed quite a few people recently about the testing, and those will be those interviews will be coming out soon. And in the next couple of years, we'll have a good test, and all of a sudden, the numbers are just going to go from three hundred thousand to three million. You know, just going to be another tenfold increase. They're just it's everywhere, and there's so many people yeah. undiagnosed. It's just it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because. You know, I've been convinced of that for years now. And <laughs> when the CDP, you know, finally came out in the summer of 2013 and admitted their ridiculous annual estimates were just that. Yeah. Even that tenfold increase in their estimates. Oh, it's nonsense. Uh, yep. Yeah. yeah. I, hope, I hope we have a. I hope we have a good acute test in the next couple of years because you're right. That'll change everything. There'll be no more debate. I was talking to a PhD, and she's running a lab in Martha's Vineyard in a small clinic there, and they're diagnosing people left and right with Lyme there. Just she said they're diagnosing people uh, essentially all year long, and what did she say? Something like thirty a week in their little clinic, and just are you serious? Yeah, yeah, just crank it through. And one of the reasons is is they're doing some decent testing and she's doing some validity. She's part of a validity study for a couple different techniques uh, for the testing. And I asked her about, you know, timeline, does it take forever? And she said, no, unlike a drug, the testing approval process is pretty straightforward. So unless this gets shot down somehow at the tail end, and then we'll all yeah. be convinced there's a conspiracy, that's really, it's, it's right on the horizon. Uh, she said they're oh, about halfway through the testing of this. And then you hear different groups, you know, with the P test and P meaning urine test and, and all kinds of other things there. So it's, it's going to happen. It really is. Well, that's exciting. I've said all along, I don't know, are you uh, familiar with a guy named John Donnelly who used to be with Tick-Borne Disease Alliance? I met him once at a fundraising event up near here. Yep. So did you? Yeah, John and I became... Uh, kind of internet friends, we still have never met face-to-face when he was doing his cross-country bicycle ride, and I was out on the AT, and we've kept in touch ever since. But I've always said to John, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about the old Tick-Borne Disease Alliance, now it's merged with some another organization, was their focus on trying to develop a good, acute lab test. Mm-hmm. Because it, it would, you know, it absolutely would be a game changer for this whole atmosphere if you can, you know, give a fairly high degree of certainty whether somebody had the active infection or not with a lab test. And there's that, you know, there's no more gray area anymore. And, and like you said, the case count will go through the roof, and it'd be a lot easier to get federal authorities to start, you know, taking this. Seriously, like an epidemic ought to be taken. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's just it's so tough on the on the frontline doctors and nurse practitioners and physicians assistants. They've got somewhere in the neighborhood of five to seven minutes to spend with the patient. Um, they don't have the training. I mean, diagnosing Lyme, unless you're really into it, where you see it everywhere under every rock. Yeah. Um, it, it, 
is tough, and it's not on the top of their list. In fact, if they're not in the Northeast, it's probably not on the list at all. Just like just like your experience, right? Yeah. They actually yeah. dismiss it. They push those thoughts out of their mind because oh, it can't be here, and and so it's not part of their differential diagnosis, their flow chart. And so because it's not of their standard flow chart that they just run through every day with every patient, it just doesn't come to mind. You know, it just no, doesn't that- come to mind. And so to you know, if when it becomes when a patient becomes a quote unquote difficult patient, if it just becomes one of those tests that they run a panel for and just automatically check for it, like Epstein Barr virus and things like that, and this thing starts coming back positive, it's just gonna it's just gonna blow the the socks off it. Then we'll have to deal with the ineffectiveness of antibiotics and uh, yeah. and cleaning up people's guts afterwards and their health after all the damage has been done for the antibiotics. But I don't want to bash them too much because they do they do save lives and uh, sometimes they're they're the only thing that can really get in there with that big hammer and and move things around. But they uh, they take a toll. How did how did oh, you treat your Lyme, by the way? Well, uh, unfortunately. Now in 2020 hindsight, I look back and I, I treated it with antibiotics, mm-hmm. and I really wish that I'd, I'd given a natural route a try. I uh, I had been infected that I knew of for five months, and in talking with my LLMD, she gave me you know two basic choices in her practice. One was the antibiotic route, one was a natural route, and uh, I chose the antibiotic. I had Bartonella. As well, so I wound up on four different orals. Yeah, and I really feel like my residual problems I'm having right now, you know, include kind of a systemic candida infection that I've not been able to get, you know, under control, and what you call leaky guts, yeah, uh, small bacterial overgrowth, probably all ripple effects from the antibiotics, and then. You know, insult to injury, when I finished the Appalachian Trail, I actually got sick with Giardia the last six weeks <laughs> I was hiking. Yeah. I'm sorry to yeah, laugh. I, oh, that's just bad luck, man. <laughs> it, was very, it was very bad luck. And uh, and my immune system just wasn't able to clear it on its own. Yeah, so I wound exactly. up with two rounds of antibiotics that did me more damage to yeah. my, my gut. Yep. And, um, you know, my line is definitely in remission. But these other ancillary damages, you know, from the antibiotics, and you're right, that is so widespread in the United States. I mean, the digestive tract destruction that the rank-and-file Americans are living with, both from the toxins they ingest through their food, you know, either bad choices with food or just food that's so adulterated anymore that it's, you know, killing the, the floral balance in their gut. And then you add the antibiotics, you know, antibiotics being given out like candy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a perfect storm. Right. No wonder these infections are, are going crazy. They've got, you know, a, a great open, open field playing ground. Yeah. Perfect storm. It's, it's a perfect storm for sure. And you know, each technology, one of my riffs, that I and soapboxes I stand up from time to time is technology is always a two-edged sword and sometimes it takes years for us to find out what the trailing edge is and then yeah. it's our responsibility and civilization is to become responsible for that and and backfill 
behind it. And this has been going on since there's been civilization. So it's not, not new technology. There's a great quote from one of the foundational Chinese medicine texts that says essentially something like, we don't know how to live today. And the ancients, they knew how to live. Today, we only live to 50 years old. And in the old days, they lived to 150. And that's because right. we've, we've forgotten the Tao. We've forgotten the way to live. And that's two, that's 2,000 years ago. That's before GMO. That's before Roundup. That's before antibiotics. That's before cell phones. So it's just, yep. you know, every tech, every technology has its, has its, dark side has its flip side yeah. they have to figure that out you know so it's it's just it's just what there is to do and antibiotics is one of them you know light bulb and sleep is another one right now we're starting to figure that yeah. out that's disrupting the bejesus out of our brains and our circadian rhythms and if you can't sleep you can't heal so forth and so on and just did, was your sleep disturbed when you were in the acute yeah. infection state yeah. that's, uh, that's it's still one of my lingering symptoms. Mm. I mean, I just want to see if you're speaking my language and I'm even more thrilled to hear that you're going to be bringing this kind of information and this kind of, you know, balanced and multi-level way of thinking to this topic. Uh, but yeah, my sleep is one of my, you know, when, when I think there was a survey a while back that LymeDisease.org did that said if there was one lingering Lyme symptom or Lyme and co-infection symptom that you could get rid of, what would it be? And uh, pain was number one, sleep was number two, and mm. sleep would have been my, my choice because I haven't had you know what I would consider a really restorative, restful night's sleep in four years. Um, I've still got some kind of hormonal imbalance, and you know I go to sleep easily, but I don't get down into the deeper stages and I don't stay there mm -hmm. and sleep is interrupted, you know, the classic, you know, you wake up still feeling fatigued, yawning constantly. Not, yeah. you know, morning used to be my favorite time of the day. You know, that's mm. when I was at my energy and it's, it's just the opposite, but it does, as you were saying, help when I get out and do adventures like this, where I'm active all day long, I go to bed when the sun goes down I got no artificial light, and I wake up when the sun comes up. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, for a few weeks, my sleep gets decidedly better, and you know, which we all know would be true for everyone if you know we could reset ourselves back to that natural circadian rhythm. Yeah, Here, here's a funny fact that Edison, one of his motivations for inventing the light bulb, was he believed basically sleep was optional he figured that most people needed about four hours and the rest of it was was literally sloth the old-fashioned sin sloth so he thought we're just all slothful sinners and he was going to save our souls with the light bulb that's a true fact that's, that's really interesting you know and, and, and some people obviously can get by with four hours and they thrive on it but uh, yeah but they're nappers they're nappers my father worked for Arthur Burns, this is history, and nobody knows who Arthur Burns is. Trivia question. For any of you out there listening who know who Arthur Burns is, send me an email. Well, you'll know. And if you knew, be honest. Send me an email and tell me you knew before I'm going to tell you who he was, and I'll send you a Lime Ninja mug because this is super trivia. He was the chairman of the Fed back in the 
geez, I was a boy. So it's kind of the 70s, probably the early 70s. And he was one of these men who didn't sleep. And my father was his personal assistant. So he would get calls back then, you know, no email, no anything. We get calls at all, all times. And he would take a nap on the way to a congressional hearing or something. He'd just say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to unplug. And he closed his eyes on the trip, the limousine trip from uh, the Fed to the congressional parking lot underground and, and take 10, 15 minutes of naps and he'd be good to go. But those those people are few and far between. The res- that's, uh, that's the- a fascinating little bit of history in your, uh, in your <laughs> background. What a, what a neat experience. Yeah, you're right. You know, napping is not something we should have given up as children. It's, uh, it's a natural part of that rhythm. And uh, it's another area where, you know, we nickel and dime our immune system yeah. by all the yeah. choices we either make of our own free will or that are posed upon us. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing that. It's interesting to me, Mackie, you know, on, on these adventures, going through small towns by foot and by bicycle, it's been a little bit depressing because so many of these small little towns I've gone through one of the consistent things you'll see is, is the city centers, the town centers have basically started to dry up and blow away. And you'll, con- you'll consistently find a handful of stores, Dollar Generals and Walmarts, yep. you know, on the edges of these communities. And most of these people that live there you know, are basically in a food desert. They're relegated to doing their shopping at places like that that you know, sell primarily processed corporate food, industrial food. Now, the, the, the upside is most of these rural people that, that I've come across and hiking, you know, across the country, hiking across the country, you get outside these cities and people are still growing gardens. Yes, exactly. And, and that's really, 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 you know, key, I think, is, is, as far as health and independence. Yeah. That we're not so tied to our corporate food supply, but it's a huge impact on the, the health of these citizens. Because what I see is what all of us see if we look is the obesity epidemic in this country. I don't believe it's a calorie in, calorie out epidemic. Oh, absolutely it's not. Toxic, it's toxicity. You know, it's, <laughs> our bodies are so toxic. And what do they do to survive? They stock all those toxins That's in right. fat cells when That's you can't right. eliminate them on a daily basis. We're, we're going to end up talking shop all night. Have you run across a researcher named Stephanie Seneff? I don't. The name that doesn't sound uh, familiar right off the top of my head. Google. When you have, when you're done with your bike trip, <laughs> in about how long is it going to be? Four months? Five months? When are you done? Oh. Actually, I'll probably be done by early October. Okay. Oh, much sooner than I thought. So sometime around Thanksgiving, Google Stephanie Seneff, and she's fascinating. She's uh, – I, I find engineers come at medicine and health at much better mental space than doctors do. They just think much more clearly. They don't have the indoctrination indoctrination yet they have the trained mind to track stuff down and hold multiple threads at the same time and so she's a uh, she's a computer scientist by training and has a bit of a background in biological sciences and she says exactly the same thing she says well those of you who are lucky are fat the rest of you are just being poisoned and dying yeah 
you know, um, I, I will definitely look her up. One of the things I'm struggling with since I had the Giardia, um, when I got sick with the Giardia, I was on the Appalachian Trail, I had uh, gotten down to probably maybe 8% body fat. Oh, my goodness. Very mean, which is, you know, the way I normally am when I'm fit and I'm you know, doing my athletics. And But when I got sick with the Giardia and my digestive system, you know, between that Lyme, co-infections, antibiotics, my digestive system got really out of whack. No matter how much exercise I'm doing now, and no matter how conscious I am of my diet, I'm still carrying around this roll around my middle and my hips. And you can see it, you know, in my videos and such. You look back to the ones on the AT, pre-Giardia. But what I try to remind myself is that's my body trying to protect me. Right. Because... You know, right now it's not firing on all cylinders. You know, I'm not processing toxins and eliminating as well as I need to. I've got an imbalance in my gut flora. But my body is doing the level best that it can. And to protect the rest of my systems from these toxins, it's sticking it into these fat cells. You know, it's the lesser of two evils. Right. And even though I'm frustrated because my clothes don't fit right, I don't like having it. <laughs> I, I try to keep it in perspective that that is the wisdom of the human body. And if we can just get back to getting out of its way and letting it do what it's been doing for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, we could turn around health in this country in mass, you know, with that kind of an awakening. Healers like you, integrated healers that are looking at all forms of information, not just what was pumped into them in medical school and and then people taking responsibility yeah. for you know their own body and, and not farming out that responsibility to another person so, so you think about this stuff and i have my own pet little half formed thoughts when so and and you're seeing this with the, I'm calling them the hill people. We have hill people around here. They still gather mushrooms, fiddleheads. They still hunt for themselves, and they hunt more than deer. They're hunting other animals as well. You know, they know how to skin an animal. They've got all that old fashioned knowledge. Yeah. And if the puck, if the apocalypse ever does come, they're the ones who are going to save our bacon. By the way, because they know how to survive yeah. off the land. But anyway, it's what what happened. What happened? How come we're so docile? And how come we just line up and get our flu shots because it's time, it's flu shot day at work. And are you going to get your flu shot? Uh huh. Have you thought about it? Nope. Are you going to go anyway? Uh huh. <laughs> you know, I, I had a great question and I've done a number of videos that touch upon that, that theme and it's a multifaceted answer, I believe. And it's been it's been uh, uh, unfolding for decades and decades and decades. I mean, part of it is: Are you familiar with like the Milgram experiment? No, Dr. Stanley Milgram nope. you know, did this experiment. It's I think it was back in the early '60s, and it's been replicated dozens of times since. But it's an experiment to um, illustrate how we are conditioned to obey authority figures mm. from our earliest age. And in this particular experiment, these unwitting subjects, it was a rigged experiment, everybody else were actors, were giving um, 
what they thought were real electric shocks to another subject across a wall that they could not see. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, and two-thirds, basically, whenever the other subject got a question wrong and the uh, the unwitting subject was the one that answered the questions and then administered the punishment, and it supposedly was an experiment about memory, what it really was was an experiment about how far will people follow an authority figure, you know, beyond their moral... Yeah. Um, Center and two thirds of the people took the shock to the extreme um, to the point where the person on the other side of the wall was not responding anymore after screaming in agony and begging to be let loose. And all it took for those people to continue to press the button was a lab technician sitting in the room with them with a white coat on, calmly saying, The experiment must continue. Wow. You must continue. Wow. And so indicative of from our earliest educational experiences, we're taught don't question the man in the white coat, don't question the man with the mm. collar, question the man with the five hundred dollar suit. Mm. You know, you go along and get along. So, you know, you add to that kind of conditioning that we're we're bathed in to the chemical conditioning people over the last 50 or 60 years from fluoride to aspartame, you know, all these excitotoxins, MSG, that are literally messing with our brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. It's no wonder critical thinking is on the endangered species list. <laughs> you know, it really is. But I uh, think there is a silk lining, and I think things have come to such an extreme situation through health, through societal changes, cultural changes, that a lot of people are waking up to that and starting to reclaim their responsibility for doing their own research, for informing their own opinions, for seeking out information and not just being a passive receiver of it through the boob tube, you know, or other mainstream corporate media. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a big part of the message and dialogue that I'm trying to have through the Trek for Truth, you know, through our website and through videos and interviews that I'm doing with people across the country just trying to advance that kind of a dialogue. You know, those are the kind of conversations that we really need to be having as a, as a people if, you know, we want to change the trajectory of the way our collective life is going. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, well, I, I see, and maybe I'm just uh, a hopeless romantic and optimist, I see there's something a little bit unique about Lyme and the way it affects people that requires the type of thinking you're talking about to come out the other end of it. And perhaps it's an opening and perhaps it will be the key that unlocks this type of thinking nationwide and and begins to really flip the script from standing in line and getting your shot to, okay, what do, what do I really need? Does this something that's really worth the risk and some actual thinking that goes into it? I'm not necessarily opposed to something like the flu shot, but know, know what you're taking into your body. Don't just line up because somebody somewhere thought it was a good idea. You know, exactly. Be, be, why, why in the world would we study... You know, the, the specs of the car we buy. Yes. Far, far too 
detail exactly. than the chemicals we allow to go into our body. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. But I, I agree with you, Mackie, and I've had a lot of conversations with blind patients, including many in my own support group, and, and I really believe that the people that are actively sick with Lyme now, many of them are the proverbial canary canaries in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. We just happen to be the people that are presenting with this illness early, but at the same time, our experiences with this are triggering just what you described, you know, maybe a deeper sense of, of knowing and being, you know, beyond just the physical animalistic existence, but it's a, I know for me personally, this Alice in Wonderland experience of having Lyme and trying to get help to get healed from it has taken me to a deeper emotional and spiritual place. Right. And in a lot of ways, it has deepened my critical thinking and my, and my commitment to use my own discernment to make decisions for my life and take responsibility for it, not farm it out, not give it away. You know, not um, advocate my responsibility for my life experience, and I think a lot of Lyme patients are waking up and and demonstrating that for for the rest of us. And if if there's a silver lining to this epidemic, that may be one of them. That's for sure. Well, Logan, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. You've been very generous, and uh, sorry to keep you from dinner. Hope you got a, a few oh, bites in there. <laughs> no, I'm all I'm all good. I uh, I really enjoy this conversation, Mackie, and, I, and my hats off to you for stepping up and 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 getting involved in this and taking it beyond just your healing practice, but through education through this podcast. And before I forget, you probably already got this guy on your potential interviewee list. But uh, are you familiar with Dr. Kerry Clark down at the University of North Florida? I have sent him an email, and he has not responded yet. So if you have an in, I would love it. Yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to, to email. He's a native Louisvillian, as I am. And uh, so I've been I've been sending him six uh, specimens, as I have a lot of other Lyme patients. He's trying to collect specimens, particularly from the southeastern United States, mm-hmm. to but help bust that myth that Lyme is not present in those six species. And uh, so my niece and I, she was doing a science project for her high school, and uh, we captured a number of them and sent them down to Dr. Clark. He'd be a great guest. He's a, you know, he's a guy that I think is on the cutting edge um, from a standpoint of the science validating that it's not just Exodes scapularis or Exodes specificus that's carrying this bacteria. And that not only are they carrying it, they, you know, ticks like the Lone Star, but that they obviously can pass it along just as, as easily as the other species. Right. So, yeah, I'll, I'll send him an email and encourage him to get back with you because I think he'd be a great guest for you. Thanks. I really appreciate it. And before you go, where can people find you on the interwebs? What's your Facebook handle, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, it's all, all consistent. It's Trek for Truth. Dot org. That's all run together. Trek, T-R-E-K, fortruth.org. And, and on Facebook. For F-O-R, not the number four, correct? Yes, exactly. Trek, T-R-E-K, F-O-R, truth. Trek for truth. And our Facebook page is the same name, Trek for truth. Our YouTube channel is the same name, Trek for truth. And if you, uh, 
take the time to subscribe to our website with your email address about once a week or two. My buddy Drew does a, uh, a weekly summary of the topics that we've covered and the distance and the adventures out on the, out on the, the trail and videos, those kind of things. So you'll get an email just letting you know there's updated information. Okay, cool. I just signed up. Awesome. All right. And so thanks again. I really appreciate your time. You are more than welcome and uh, love to talk in the future sometime. If, uh, if we get the chance, hopefully we'll have a little celebration when I get to the Pacific Ocean and then try to figure out how I'm going to get home. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, take, we'll pass the hat. Great interview. I'm really looking forward to hearing his updates, actually. All right. Let's jump right to it. <laughs> hey, McKay. It's Logan. It's Saturday evening. About 8.15 Central Time, I am in Scott City, Kansas, um, been making steady progress to the tune of about 55 to 60 miles a day um, since we last spoke, and uh, we'll be crossing into Colorado on Monday. Um, took a rest day in Hutchinson, Kansas, and visited with an old friend of mine from Louisville, who had uh, recently moved home to Hutchinson, and um, was able to meet with a Lyme family there, Amy Johnson and her daughters, uh, Sydney and Hallie. Um, Amy was uh, fairly recently diagnosed with Lyme, but uh, it's fairly certain she's had it for 15 years, and both Sydney and and Hallie, 12 and 9, um, contracted it congenitally from Amy. So they are uh, about a year into treatment, give or take, and I was able to have coffee with them, coffee with Amy, and hang out with the three of them. Made a little video that's up on our YouTube channel and on Facebook. Um, really courageous Lyme warriors, and such a common story, as, as you well know, that um, Lyme is being spread by far more than just tick bites. and. Uh, from mother to child, and very likely, I think, through the blood supply, time will prove that. Um, it's a much more sweeping and dangerous epidemic than obviously uh, mainstream public health is letting on. And we're continuing to try and share that story. So from the field, that's all the news that's fit to print. Weather's been pretty good, a little hot, but, uh, but you know, we can't complain. No big storms and uh, making progress. So I'll call in and check in with you next week. Thanks for everything. Bye. To hear more about Logan and his trek across America, tune in next week and we'll have another update from him. And if you need more Lime Ninja in your life, visit our website, LimeNinjaRadio.com. There you can find all 52 past episodes. Woohoo! They're archived so you can listen again and again and get more out of them each time you listen. On the website, you can also sign up for our Ninja Insider mailing list and pick up the Lime Ninja Brain Fog Protocol as our thank you. But that's not all. Lime Ninja Radio is also on iTunes, Stitcher, Twitter, and Facebook. And lastly, this podcast would not be a podcast unless it was a podcast. And we left you with... The Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know that ninjas can fold airplanes into paper?
Lyme Danger Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lyme Danger Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lyme Danger Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lyme Danger Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.